Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. History often has a sense of inevitability. We tell stories of the past with the benefit of hindsight. We already know what is going to happen. However, history in the making takes us by surprise. In the cloud of adrenaline and in-the-moment myopia, it can be hard to tell what is about to happen. That was not the case in Charlottesville. Many knew what was coming, people of color especially. Activists, progressive clergy, and private citizens repeatedly warned local lawmakers, police, and University of Virginia leadership that extreme violence would break out when the neo-Nazis and white nationalists came to town that August. They were largely ignored. The cost of this refusal to listen and the resulting lack of police response was human life. And yet we have seen this same stonewalling, whether willful or unwitting, play out over and over again in the years since, as the white supremacist threat only increased in America. The story of August 11th and 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville is the story of activists explicitly sounding the alarm on a specific credible threat and the failure of city leadership and law enforcement to protect their citizens. Hello, my name is Paula Muñoz. I'm a communications officer at the School of Security Studies at King's College London. Today, I'm honored to be joined by a very special guest, Nora News, an Emmy-nominated producer, writer, and freelance journalist who studied for a master in the Department of War Studies a few years ago. She just read for us an extract of her latest book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, which delves into white nationalist riots based on the tumultuous events of the 11th and 12th of August 2017. So in this podcast episode, we will talk about the book and also about Nora's career, which intersects journalism, research, and conflict. Your latest book was published in May this year, and it offers a comprehensive oral history of a significant moment in American history. So could you tell us more about the book and what were the motivations for writing it? So the book is really the story of the white supremacist riot in Charlottesville back in August of 2017. And I had been in college in Charlottesville, this kind of small bucolic town in Virginia, just south of Washington, D.C. And I lived there after graduation. I became a local news reporter. And one of the big stories that I covered at that time was this question about Confederate statues. So after the U.S. Civil War, there were these Confederate statues put in of essentially the losers. And they were mostly installed, not right after the war, but decades later, as really a way of intimidating and subjugating Black Americans. And so there's been a big national debate about whether these statues should come down. And a lot of that early conversation started to get the attention of these national white supremacist groups. And very soon it became clear that it wasn't really about the statues. 
the statues were kind of the, the impetus, but these groups were really coming to fight against what they see as white people losing control of America. And as these groups started to put Charlottesville in their sight, we knew this was coming. I was a local journalist and a woman named Heather Heyer was killed, a counter protester. And in the years since, it has felt like we've lost a little bit of an understanding of what happened in Charlottesville and what that larger context was. So the book really was an attempt to fully elucidate the context around Charlottesville, um, as well as what actually happened, and doing that by telling the story and the voices of the people who were there. Yeah, and in that sense, it seems that the book not only captures a specific moment, the moment that you are relating, but also holds wider implications for society, David. So Absolutely, and I think this is really one of the first major, at the time it was the largest white supremacist gathering in modern American history. But there is a direct line between August 12th in Charlottesville and January 6th, the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. And some of the same people were even there. Yeah. And will you discuss how the book fits into the larger debate that is happening maybe today in U.S. and worldwide around issues such as white nationalism, activism and even confronting hate? Absolutely. I think the book really fits into that larger conversation because it tells the story from the perspective of the activists and even Antifa members who often get a bad name from some of their more militant tactics, but who really were the people trying to keep Charlottesville safe. It was these activists had the intelligence and had the ability to actually stand up and combat hate. Kind of unique things about my book is the access that I had to these activists, but also this idea that the activists knew what was going to happen and were unable to get people in power to stop it. Well, considering also that resilience of anti-racist activists is a central theme here in this book, what insights did you gain from the people you interviewed? And how do you think their stories could impact maybe other people and other stories and narratives around these topics? A lot of the anti-racist activists were the ones doing the best intelligence gathering. There was this whole network of activists who were infiltrating Discord groups and DMs and planning groups, email listservs. And there were all these civilians who were doing the work of figuring out the threat and who was going to be there and what was going to happen. And the anti-racist activists actually put together a dossier with all this information and presented it to city council, asking them to deny the permit for this event. And the city council said no. There were some legal questions about freedom of speech, but at the end of the day, they were presented with information showing that this was going to be violent and chose not to do anything about it on the front end. Mm. Yeah. And well, in relation to the work behind this research, what challenges did you face in waving together different voices and perspectives and also to address a really sensitive topic these days? I really wanted to respect the agency of each person telling their story and the different memories of that day memory from an event six years ago is tough anyway, and there would be different memories of what happened. 
but also memory during a traumatic event often has gaps and, and things missing. And so when different people had different accounts of what happened, it was hard, but I think important to do my own set of investigation and fact checking and make sure that whatever I was publishing in the book still fit with the, the actual pattern of facts. Now, sometimes that's not possible and different people remember different, you know, interpersonal reactions different ways. And in those cases, I put both versions in the book. And so everything within the book is is woven together in a way that I think walks the line pretty well between respecting everyone's individual memories, but also the facts of the day. Well, what messages or experiences you aim to convey to readers in relation to that experiences and the topics that the books highlights? Everything in the book really relies on storytelling and with the information that people had at the time. Ultimately, I think the book is very immersive, that people can really experience the events of the 24 hours alongside the characters. Why do you think it's important to address or to write about these kind of stories in relation to what is happening worldwide and the U.S., Europe, even in Latin America in relation, in relation to that? Why do you think it's important to discuss about this and to make everything more like visible? White supremacy and hate groups and kind of the alt-right movement thrives in secrecy and in dark places. And being able to bring this topic out into the light and have deeper conversations about what these people really stand for and what they're willing to do in terms of violence is important to understand the full brunt of the threat. This is a very, very serious threat that needs to be understood as such. Yes, and as an author and also as a journalist, what are your main conclusions about this? I mean, how do you see these? Maybe as a research project or maybe as a research topic that academia has to consider? Mm. From a process perspective, I think way more attention for both scholars and, and folks in the academy, researchers, journalists, must be put on the activists who are fighting back. And so often they're discounted because often they are working class people. They're folks that maybe don't have a formal education. They're often queer people of color, folks with other marginalized identities. And they tend to be discounted by scholars, by mainstream journalists, And they are the people who are doing the most work to confront hate and fascism and, and, and the rising creep of fascism across all aspects of our society and our world. And so way more attention needs to be given to those groups and using them as a resource. They, they're doing incredible work, honestly, that the government's not doing um, to, to prevent this threat. Yeah, and how do you think that we could promote more actions against this? Because, of course, in your book, it reflects as a problem embedded in our society. And, of course, as a problem which is embedded in our society, it's difficult to break, like, the structure. So how do mm -hmm. you see, like, a possible solution? 
I think we need to listen to citizens and listen to people who are raising the alarm on these threats. Sometimes there's an inclination to say, well, it's not going to be that bad, or, oh, these people are overblowing the threat, or, you know, it's not fascism, it's just politics that you disagree with. And in a lot of cases, it's that underplaying of the threat that becomes part of the problem and enables these groups to grow. And we have to be honest and serious about the threat of fascism and hate in in our world. Yes. And in relation to your experience writing this book, what was the most important challenge that you encountered addressing this topic and talking to people related to these, not only activists, but maybe people who are part of the of the movement of the white nationalism? So one of the decisions that I made was to not speak to white nationalists. And this is kind of known as this idea of platforming, so that you don't want to platform members of a hate group. If you do interviews with white nationalists for a book project like this, they often are excited. They're often happy to be asked. They often, it makes them feel important. And then they can use the final product to accomplish their own goals. So for propaganda, for legitimacy. And so the book fully tells the story of what happened in Charlottesville, and it even uses quotes from white supremacists and neo-Nazis, but things that they've said in other contexts or things that they've said in other interviews, things they've said on camera that were caught in the day of flyers and written material. And I think it's something that as, as media, we have to think about too, this idea of platforming neo-Nazis and, and fascists. And maybe we, I mean, I would say not maybe, but we definitely don't need to platform them uh, and give them as much of a voice to spread what is their hateful ideology. Yeah, it's a really good point. And have you received any comment or feedback from people related to, to the movement? Not white nationalists or neo-Nazis. There probably is some discussion about it on some of their own social media and channels that I don't have any interest in reading. Um, but the, the feedback from activists and community members and survivors has been that they feel like it really captures the accuracy of the day and it's the, the most kind of true definitive version of the day. What are the comments from, from the people like the activists? in relation to, to your book? What is the feedback and the reception there? The reception has been incredible. And that's something that I was really worried about and nervous about just because these are the people that were actually on the ground and risked their lives. And you, you have to wonder if you're going to get everything right or people are going to respond to it. So I've been very, very honestly honored that people feel like it's an accurate representation of one of the worst moments of their life. Yeah, well, glad to hear that because it's a really interesting book. And if you want to invite people to read your book, what is your message to them to invite them to read your book? I would love for people to read the book. And I think it is a easy way to understand what happened, even if you have absolutely no background information. I've heard from a lot of people who have said, oh, yeah, I kind of heard that thing in the news, but I never really paid attention to it. I didn't know what happened. The book is perfect for those people as well. 
Um, it's told in this very easy to read oral history format that is very compelling. Um, and so there's links on my website, which is just noranoose.com. Um, and then it's available for purchase and also is on ebook and audiobook. Well, you have another book coming next year, and it seems that you will continue your mission of amplifying marginalized voices. So could you give us a glimpse into how you are approaching this project and, and when it will be published? Sure. So I have another book coming out next year that on the surface is very different. It's actually a young adult a graphic novel, um, and it's historical fiction based in 1888 and follows the real life story of an undercover reporter who was a young girl, 17, who infiltrated New York City's garment factories where there was a lot of child labor. And she exposed the, the child labor and uh, exposed the whole kind of corrupt factory industry in New York at the turn of the century. And it started off as a project, you know, after my first book was about Syria and the conflict in Syria. And this book was about Charles Soule and white nationalism. And so I kind of needed something a little bit lighter. And so I thought a historical fiction young adult book would be lighter. And there's, there's a romance, there's a very sweet romance in the in the book. But then of course I had to go and add something a little bit more intense. Uh, so I think that's just where at my interest lies. I think a lot of the similarities are in the kind of extreme power of journalism to tell the truth, um, but also to listen to the experiences of people who are actually going through the thing that you're talking about, not just interviewing experts or people from afar, but the actual people on the ground in the danger. Yeah, I think we didn't mention the name of the book. So it's called Stunt Girl. Yeah. And when will we publish? I I don't think we have a date yet, but it's the probably late next year. Okay, great. Yeah, looking forward for it. <laughs> From local news to CNN and now as an independent journalist an author, your career trajectory is truly inspiring. So could you reflect on the moments or experiences that influenced you to transition from producing to writing and reporting and how these roles complement each other? Sure. At the end of the day, I think I'm really interested in using stories to get at a deeper truth and using, using this idea of storytelling to reach wider audiences. You know, at one point I thought about becoming strictly an academic and I still really think about pursuing academia and in a way I am. I mean, I, I teach undergraduates at the university level um, and I have my, my master's degree both from King's, but I also have a separate master of public policy degree. And I think I approach things from a pretty academic perspective, but then use story to make those those topics accessible. So I think, you know, a dry book about white nationalism might not be the kind of thing that an average person picks up and reads in an afternoon. Whereas with my book, I've gotten a lot of feedback that someone picked it up and started reading it and then couldn't put it down and was finished a couple hours later. 
Um, I think the same goes for my first book about Syria, which is aimed toward children. It's that's a it's a children's book, um, but deals with some very serious topics. And I've had adults tell me and parents especially that they read the book with their kid, but then they actually for the first time understood what actually was happening in the Syrian civil war. And so whether it's journalism or nonfiction, all these kind of ways of, of storytelling really get at those more important topics. And it's, I think that's kind of the connection for, for me. It's interesting how you are exploring like different formats and even trying to reach different audiences. So is there any motivation behind? Hmm. I mean, on some very basic level, I've always wanted to make the world a better place. And I think for a long time, I thought that might be through politics. And then I got a little bit disenfranchised about how politics works and how things actually have to happen within politics. And it felt like journalism and truth-telling and storytelling was really part of what I could do to help. Could you tell us more about that experience as a journalist reporting in conflict zones? Yeah, so at the beginning of the Russian invasion in February 2022, I reported for CNN from Ukraine. This was when I was still uh, an employee of CNN, where I worked for almost six years before leaving earlier this year. And it was my first time directly reporting in a conflict zone. I mean, we were very much at war. There were air raid sirens every day. Um, there was a, an airstrike about a kilometer from where we were staying in an area that we had been earlier that morning. And we were interviewing refugees who had fled from the front lines. And something that I'm most interested in like a lot of people, I think, is the kind of human stories. So, you know, I have my master's in war studies from King's College. I'm less interested in like troop movements and strategy and some of this more specific military focused action. And I'm much more interested in how people are living a war and what impact civilians have and what it does to communities and and countries. And so I was able to do a lot of that kind of reporting in Ukraine and talk to refugees. You know, we did this one story with, with a young man who was escaping Chernihiv with his mother in a car. And they hit a, they, they think they hit a, hit a mine in the road. The car exploded, his mother was killed, and he horribly injured his leg. And so by the time I met him, he was about 16. By the time I met him, he was in a children's hospital in Lviv in Ukraine. And he had had a completely normal life up until this point. I mean, he was talking about liking his guitar and being a teenager and going to school. And his entire life changed in a matter of days when the Russians invaded. Um, and so stories like that are really powerful, I think, to also show the human toll and cost of war. Yes, totally. Well, and in relation to that, what is your approach to research and report and even write about sensitive topics like that? Because, of course, it could be tricky to get stories or voices that are experiencing horror, chaos and pain. Mm -hmm. How do you approach them in a respectful way? I feel very strongly about how we approach victims of trauma because I've had to do it a lot. I think the biggest thing is remembering that 
as a journalist, your story, your interview, your filming is the least important thing in that moment. Your story doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. This kid has just lost everything and is hurt and is injured. And there's also, it's a power dynamic that you have to keep in mind. When there's American Western journalists coming into your hotel, your hospital room, and your leg is up in traction and you can't move, and we say, do you want to talk to us? That's not an even power dynamic. And so putting the camera down, putting your notepad down, having human conversations, trying to get a sense of if someone genuinely wants to share, how much they want to share. You know, I do a lot of my interviews and I say, at the beginning, I say, you know, if I met you at a party, I would never ask these questions. I'm going to ask you some weird and personal questions because I'm a journalist and this is an interview. Any of them you can choose not to answer. And I don't do that with politicians. You know, with politicians, they have to answer the questions that I ask them. Um, but right. for a regular person, they have the power. And I say, always, you have, you can stop at any time. Just because you agree to this interview in the beginning doesn't mean that you can't change your mind in the middle. And just trying to make sure that they understand that they have the full power and agency in how they're telling the story. Yeah, that's good because sometimes it's like journalism forget to respect the stories, the voices behind the stories, you know? So I think it's... Absolutely. And these are kind of quote unquote characters in our story, but it's also their real lives. And we need to remember that. Yeah, totally. I agree. So could you speak more about your process of immersing yourself in these experiences on different subjects and adapting your storytelling style to communicate their complexities to different audiences? Sure. I mean, I think immersing yourself as much as possible in communities and with folks on just like a human level is really important while also remembering that you will always be an outsider. And there is something very different. Like my experience in Ukraine, the early weeks of the war was similar in a lot of ways to Ukrainians experiences, but also extremely different. I, you know, would go to the grocery store in Ukraine and there was basically no food left on the shelves. There was, there were a couple, there's a lot of candy left, which I love candy. So I, I bought a bunch of like Ukrainian candy, but there was no bread, no milk. There was, there was nothing really to eat left on the shelves. And there were Ukrainian grandmothers, especially in this one store I was in, who were trying to figure out, you know, what they were literally going to eat that night. They and I had the same experience in the store in terms of like seeing what was on the shelf, but my news agency had brought in a van full of food for us so that we didn't starve and a wildly different experience knowing that I had food waiting for me at the hotel. And there's also an ethical question there. We're journalists, but also we're humans. And these are also humans. And if we have food and we have water, how and when do we share it? And in dire situations, of course you would share, but even when you immerse yourself as a journalist, you still come with all the background of who you are and all the privilege with where you come from. Yeah. And how long you were in Ukraine reporting? I was there for two weeks. Okay. I feel like the experience was really intense. It was. And I made some very good friends. I had this fixer uh, named Petro, who now is one of my like very, very good friends. We're working on a story 
uh, right now, actually, a big long-form magazine story together that we're co-reporting. And so I've stayed in touch with him and his family and seen some of his friends in, in the city and in New York City. And it, it's been great. Good. That's nice. Considering the current media landscape, we have to say that it's often criticized for sensationalism, especially for covering topics like the war in Ukraine and also, for example, the Syrian civil war. How do you maintain a balance and what is your perspective about this sensationalism? I think we have to be very careful to maintain trust in our media. And unfortunately, a lot of modern journalism has not done anything to engender that trust. There is a lot of sensationalism and there is a lot of kind of new from the, the mainstream, this idea that the status quo is neutral or the status quo is objective. Whereas for so many people, the status quo you know, the way that their life is going right now is incredibly painful and they don't have the resources and they are caught up in larger forces beyond themselves that make their lives incredibly difficult. And so sensationalism, I think it's absolutely a, a problem, but I think an, another problem is almost the, the opposite, which is the kind of, well, this is all normal in the course of a uh, a society, and it's normal that we have some people who are extremely poor and can't feed themselves. Whereas I think we kind of need to be a little bit more honest about the problems in our society and not taking everything for granted. True. And have you ever experienced a situation where do you, you feel like the media where you work, like a television or a magazine shape uh, in a wrong way, the focus of a story that you want to approach? Sometimes, of course, the media is dominated by economic power and political interest, especially when you are talking about the war. So, yeah, I would like to know if you have ever experienced something like that. I didn't feel that way really at all in Ukraine and, and with the war, although I think what's interesting is now we've we've largely stopped covering the war in Ukraine as, a, as an American media landscape as much as we were. I mean, it was back to back in the beginning and the war is still very much ongoing and people are still dying every day. Uh, I know people on the front lines still today. We treat it as just this background thing that's going on now. And I think part of that is economic pressure. You know, it's not new anymore. It's exciting anymore. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of using that in quotes. It's not going to sell advertising the same way. It's not going to rate the same way. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not incredibly important to cover. The same is true in Syria. I mean, the war in Syria has been going on for over 10 years and is still devastating to so many families and communities. And people are still dying. And the Assad regime is still in power. And we barely ever cover the Syrian war at this point because it's just become commonplace. Yeah, more bombs in Idlib, like what's new? And that's really dangerous too because the complacency and letting stories go unreported is really dangerous and, and hurtful. Yes, I agree. And while considering that journalism is also undergoing rapid changes to technology and evolving media landscape, what trends or developments do you anticipate in journalism and the media? Oh, that's a good, that's a big question. From a, from a positive perspective, 
I do think we're beginning to have conversations in journalism about the ethics of using individuals, people's stories without, you know, giving them power or agency and telling their story. I think there's a lot more conversation about how we're taking care of victims and survivors, what kind of questions we're asking them, letting them have a little bit more agency in the ways those stories are told. I think we're starting to have a much greater diversity of this in, in the media and also increases the quality of our reporting. I think I am hopeful about this next generation of journalists who are coming into the field having seen some of the devastating impacts of, of the breakdown of, of media and of crying fake news. Yes, and in that regard, do you have any advice for people who wants to pursue a career in journalism or maybe do something in relation to media or writing and discussing about sensitive topics like the war or conflict zones and so on? Mm -hmm. One of my biggest pieces of advice always for aspiring journalists and for journalism students is to study something else and get life experience in this world around us. I think sometimes we have a problem when especially young people are very well trained in the skills of journalism, but may not know a whole lot about history and politics and this larger context that we're operating within. My master's in war studies Some people didn't understand why I was doing it and why I was going to King's and why I would put time and energy into this. But the, my years in the program enormously helped me to understand the world around me and understand the context for the war in Ukraine, for example. You know, I had a whole class on post-Soviet uh, nation building and post-Soviet conflict. And all of that knowledge and information and academic knowledge really informed my reporting. So if there was a student listening, I would say, take classes in other subjects, learn more about the world, get life experiences. I think in some cases working, you know, I, I get a lot, I have a lot of students saying, well, like if I don't have an internship at a prestigious newspaper or channel, will I, in college, will I be able to do this for a living? And I would say, I think in some cases, it's even more valuable for you to go and work. And I mean, if you work at a supermarket and talk to different people every day and observe, those skills are incredibly powerful. And you learn a little bit about how the world works. And so not necessarily pigeonholing yourself straight into journalism from the beginning can be really powerful. My fun fact is that I've never taken a journalism class. Journalist by practice, I have to say. Exactly. Yeah. And well, in that role as a journalist and even as a writer, what kind of impact do you hope to leave on your readers and audiences through your reporting and writing? On some fundamental level, I hope people understand that there are people living very different lives than them and to appreciate what we do have to understand that there's always something that we can do. I think it's easy for us to say government will take care of it or the leaders will take care of it. And I think a big part of growing up just personally has been realizing like there's no magic adult in the room who's going to fix things. Like it's just us and we all have to work together to figure out how to make this world a little bit more hospitable.
totally. And final question. Well, there are people that think that journalism is a tool to empower citizens while other people think that it's just a tool to sell stories in relation to economic and political intentions. So what do you think? What is your, your opinion about it? I think journalism is one of the most critical tools for enabling democracy and enabling flourishing, but it has to be responsible journalism, journalism that tells the truth, that tells the, the most true version of a story that includes different voices and represents marginalized communities and gives context and history. And sometimes journalism done by political organs or by individual groups is actually very good journalism. You can look at history and look at early abolitionist newspapers in the United States. These were written by people of color, Black Americans, advocating specifically for a political end that was the end of slavery. But that journalism was, was incredibly powerful and in a lot of ways accomplished that. You can look at LGBTQ plus publications during the crisis and doing in very important, very good reporting on what medications were available, where the approval processes were, and how many people were dying. Reporting that wasn't being done by the mainstream journalism world in the, in the early days, at least, and not in, in such a way that would help actual patients. And so I don't think that journalism that has a specific aim necessarily undermines the credibility or the usefulness of that journalism. Um, I think journalism based on truth and facts and communicating that, that truth and those facts uh, is, is essential for community and for society. I agree. It's really interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks to you for your time and your kind disposition and everything. It has been lovely to meet you and to speak with you. So Yeah, you as well. This was really great. You've been listening to the Worst Studies podcast, produced and edited by the communications team from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you will find in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider to help us reach more listeners. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Worst Studies Podcast.